The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. You know, uh, the Christmas message that our culture, and um, if you're a fan of various Christmas movies that you tend to watch, the message that, you, that you'll hear is that Christmas, Christmas is about family, and it's about being cheerful in your heart. But truly, truly at the heart of Christmas is the truth that God is love. God sent his only son so that we might live through him. And because his love is poured into our hearts, God sends us now to love one another. Let's pray together before we open God's word. God, what, a, what an incredible, wonderful time of year this is. We pray that you would please help us to not be so accustomed to the birth of your son that, that we're not in awe. In awe of your grace to us. A people you have loved at such a great cost to yourself. We give thanks for your word. And pray that you would give us ears to hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. On December 12th, 2013, Anita Smith wrote an open letter to the people of Libya. She said, my husband and best friend Ronnie Smith loved the Libyan people. For more than a year, Ronnie served as a chemistry teacher in a school in Benghazi, and he would gladly have given more years to Libya if unknown gunmen had not cut his life short on December 5th, 2013. Ronnie and I came to Libya because we saw the suffering of the Libyan people But we also saw your hope, and we wanted to partner with you to build a better future. Libya was very different from what we had experienced before, but we were excited to learn about Libyan culture. Ronnie grew to love you and your way of life, as did I. 
Ronnie really was Livia's best friend. Friends and family from home were concerned about our safety, as were some of you. We talked about this more times than I can count. But we talked about this more, um, but we stayed because we believed the Libyan people were worth the risk. Even knowing what I know now, I have no doubt that we would both make the same decision all over again. Ronnie loved you all so much, especially his students. He loved to joke with you, tell stories about you, help, help you with your lives, and challenge you to be all that you could be. He did his best to live out his faith humbly and respectfully within a community of people with a different faith. Love compelled them to go. And love costs this family so much. What is love? Well, in verse 8 of our text, we read that God is love. I want to think about this, that God is not only loving, but that God is love. And because of this, love compels us, even commands us, to love like he loves. Why did Ronnie and Anita Smith love Libya? Why did they go to such a dangerous place where Ronnie ultimately paid with his life and Anita lost her husband and their infant son lost his daddy? God's love compelled them to go. It compelled them to stay there and share Jesus. And it cost them so much. Unlike other subjects, love is not simply understood and then practiced. No, in reality, it's only understood by practice. And with this idea of understanding by experience, one person said that love is more like measles than math. John teaches us that the essence and the evidence of Christian living is love. Verse 7 gives us the command, Beloved, let us love one another. Christian, you are to love people. This is an imperative statement of command. Love one another. And then we're given two reasons for doing so. For, or because, here's the first reason, because love is from God. You are commanded to love people because God is the source of love. Love comes from God because God is love. Think of light shining from the sun. Love is like light in that it radiates from God, from his nature. God is not just loving. He is the very source of love. And so the question we might ask is, how could those born of him and indwelt by his spirit not love? But let's be clear about the meaning of love. When we think of love, we tend to think of um, emotions. We think of this feeling that we have when we, 
Well, when, maybe when we look at the cuteness of our children, our grandchildren, and we hear people, usually women, say silly things like, Oh, I just want to squish them and eat them up. Which sounds kind of violent and strange, but we know what they mean. This feeling is so strong, in a good way, possessive. And there's a similar sense or feeling of strong desire that's applied to a romantic relationship. We just find ourselves staring and admiring and wanting, and we just want to spend all of our time with this person and be with this person for the rest of our lives. And certainly this is a part of love, but John describes something different here. It's not, it's not a huggy, sentimental feeling. Yes, love involves your emotion, but the biblical idea is in the word agape, which is a love that's unconditional. A love that seeks with, with total commitment the highest good for a person. So that unconditional part of love means that we're compelled, not by the object, not their cuteness or goodness or inner or outer beauty. No, the compelling reason for agape love is in the giver. In other words, God does not love us saying, I love you if, or or I love you because we, the objects of his love, are not the cause. There's nothing inherent within us that just makes God want to squish us and eat us up. No, we're sinners. And what we actually deserve is to literally be squished and eaten up. We're sinners. And God's love for us, his desire for our highest good is not compelled by our beauty or goodness. In fact, the repeated picture given to us throughout the Old Testament is that we, God's people, are an unfaithful bride. Or to be more blunt, like the book of Hosea puts it, we're like Gomer, a wife of whoredom. Ugly. So God's love for us is not motivated by, or or God's love is motivated by who he is, not by who we are. And so we read in verse 19 that the reason we love is because he first loved us. The agape love that a Christian is commanded to give is something that's a part of our new birth. It's not the instinct or feelings that are common to all people. It's not simply gratitude. It's not simply an emotion. It's not something we only see and then imitate. It's more of a participation from within. God's love is created within us. Its likeness is produced in us, and so instead of Loving to fill our emptiness, we love from the fullness of God. God didn't create you and choose you to choose to love you because He was empty and in need. No, God is love. He is full. 
He's an overflowing fountain who chose to love you, not because of you, not because of your worthiness, not because of something that you might add to him, which is impossible. Because he's full. He's perfect. This is the kind of love that we're given. And so we are to love with the love of God, not because a person deserves it or compels us, but because God compels us, because the love he poured into us overflows to others. The first reason that we as Christians are to love is because love is from God. And the second reason we're commanded to love one another is that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And this doesn't mean that any person who, who experiences feelings of love is a Christian. No, the point is that if you think of yourself as a Christian and you're not giving God's love, then there's no evidence that you've been born of God, that you even know God. Being a Christian means that there's a relationship between God and you. There's a, there's a new birth. He's created something in you. And since God is love, then if you truly are his child, uh, you'll have his DNA within you. Your naturally born children have your DNA. They have your nature genetically passed on to them. They can't help it. And John is saying something along these lines. God is love. Love is is not only what God does, love is a part of his essence or nature. And so if you are truly a Christian, if you've been born of God, then you'll love because his nature is birthed within you. This is why in chapter 2 of John's epistle, we read, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We obey and we follow after him. Not to earn his favor, but because he's changed us. His DNA is within us, and we can't help but to grow in his likeness. So be concerned about those people who claim to be Christians, and yet their life is a contradiction to the love of God. If they're mean, if they're cruel, unforgiving, and they hate people, it's hard to imagine that they truly know God because it would appear that God's likeness is not in them. Lots of people can know things about the Christian faith. They can know the Bible, they can know theology, and many true things about God. But if they have not love, they're just a bunch of noise. Knowing God means that we're in an intimate relationship with him, that we're rightly related to him, that his life and love has been 
birthed in us. And so, more than facts, we resemble and express who God is. And God is love. God's love changes us. This is why John says that God's love is perfected in us. God not only not only saves us from his wrath, but he saves us for a purpose. There's an aim. There's a goal in saving us. And this is the beauty of the new covenant. Because we're not simply commanded to love, but we're given the capacity to love. The law reveals God's perfection like a mirror reveals our sin and guilt, our lack, our inability to rightly please God. And grace not only removes that guilt and forgives, but it also changes us. It compels us. It enables us to be more and more like Jesus. So as a Christian, hearing the command to love makes sense because we've been born again. It makes sense because we've been given the capacity to love. And yes, we're, we're tempted on many occasions not to love and to live like the unsaved person that we once were. But as Christians, we're reminded that we, we really have no right to live this way. And that we must obey God's command and live like Christians, like people who've been given the capacity to love. So let's follow John's argument here. In verse 7, we're commanded to love. Love one another because love is from God. And loving is evidence that we're born of God and we truly know God. And then verse 8 emphasizes really the same thing saying it in an opposite way. Verse 7 says, loving means that we know God. And verse 8 says, those who don't love do not know God. Why? Well, because love is from God. Or as verse 8 says, God is love. If love is a part of God's own nature and a person claims to belong to him, but doesn't carry on the the family trait of love, then how is it even possible for that person to think that he truly knows and belongs to God? And let's be clear that, that God, God is the one who defines love. Saying, saying God is love does not mean that love is God. We don't define God by our concept of love, but love is defined by God because he is the source of love. We we might say, I love this person, well, because they're beautiful or handsome, funny or smart, or they just make me feel good. But God loves, not simply as a response, but because, as one person put it, It's his settled disposition toward us. It's his settled disposition toward us that flows from his being, nature, and divine attributes. It's along the same lines as God's predestination. It's grace that he chooses us. Not because we stand out as being 
better than the rest, but because God's decisions are his. It's based on him and not us. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He loves whom he loves. Think of it this way. The the sun doesn't shine on the earth because of the earth, but because the sun is the sun. God doesn't love me because I am I, but because he is he. So when John says God is love, he's saying much more than God loves us. C.H. Dodd said that the statement God is love might stand alongside other statements such as God creates, God rules, God judges. That is to say it means that love is one of his activities. But to say God is love implies that all his activities, all his activity is loving activity, even his judgment. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is to the expression of his nature, which is love. Stay with me here. This is kind of philosophical, heady stuff. You've got to really think, but it's rich. C.S. Lewis said that God's love is gift love. In God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled. Only, only plenteousness that desires to give. This kind of love in us enables us to love those who, to us, are naturally unlovable. And isn't this what God has done for us? God who is eternally perfect in need of nothing to make him more fulfilled or satisfied, absolutely perfect, and yet he chose to create. He couldn't help but but overflow in his glory. Or as Jonathan Edwards put it, a fountain is not deficient in that it overflows. God just couldn't help it. It's who he is. And so God gloriously overflowed in creating the universe and us, which speaks of his perfection. He chose to create us. He chose to love us. And even when humanity rebelled and deserved eternal death, still he chose to love them and provide a way of salvation. Look at verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God overflowed. He revealed. He manifested who he is by sending his only son. Not because he had to. Not because he just had to have us and would be incomplete without us. No, he sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, the sun doesn't shine on the earth because of the earth. The sun shines because it's the sun. God loves because God is love. And we see his love. We see the ultimate expression of his love in sending his only son to be born, to be 
to become a man with all of the human limitations in the person of Jesus Christ. To to give the gift of love for the sins of unlovable people. And oh, what a great love. God has manifested. God has shown to us in Jesus. And I want to consider five aspects of this love from our text. First, God sent. God is the one who acted to bring about our reconciliation. Uh, think of it this way. When, when someone offends you, when someone hurts you, if there's going to be a healing or a reconciliation to that relationship, who do we expect to initiate this? Uh, parents, if, if you have children and little Susie takes a toy from little Johnny and Johnny begins to cry, we don't tend to say, now Johnny, you need to make this right with your sister. It's the other way around. When someone isn't looking where they're going and they, and they bump into you and step on your foot, you don't tend to say, oh, I'm sorry. No, the one who offends is the one who typically initiates and seeks the forgiveness of the one offended. And in our relationship with God, he's the offended party. He's the offended party. And instead of us coming to him, God sent. God sent. God is the one who initiated our reconciliation to him. Second, not only did God graciously initiate by sending, but notice whom he sent, his only, only son. Not another leader to represent him, not a, another prophet to speak for him, not a, an angel as his messenger. God sent his only son. And in the Greek, the word only means one of a kind. Jesus is not a son but God's only, one-of-a-kind, unique Son who shares in the very nature of the Godhead. Jesus is truly God. God the Son who took on flesh and became truly man as well. To solve the problem of our sin, God sent the only one who can reconcile us to Him. Truly, the greatest possible gift of love in sending his son. Third, in thinking of the greatness of God's love manifested to us, we consider the purpose of God in sending his son. The end of verse 9 tells us, so that we might live through him. And this implies that without Jesus, our condition and ultimate end would be death instead of life. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so our only hope of life, of eternal life, is the forgiveness of our sins and a right relationship with God through the person of Jesus. So God sent he sent his only son. He sent his only son so that we might live. And fourth, love begins with him. He's the source. Verse 10 tells us, in this is love. You want to know about love? 
this is love. It's not that we have loved God. Our loving relationship with God is not because we one day decided to love God, but that He loved us. Rightly rightly understanding the love of God for you means that it's important to get the order right. We need to get the order right. God's word repeatedly emphasizes an order of love concerning our relationship with God. It didn't begin with you loving him, but God loving you. It's not that you wisely decided to love and trust God. It's that he graciously changed your heart of rebellion to a heart that that wanted to come to him, that now loves him. It's not that you saw the beauty of his kingdom. It's that he caused you to see his glory, that that you'd want to now come to him. The order is important because God is love and God's grace is only grace if he's the giver, if he's the initiator, and we are the recipients and the responders. And this is important because God alone is worthy to receive the glory and we are left with no possibility of boasting. And fifth, the greatness of God's love is seen in what it cost him. Think of what it cost him. God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. You know that word propitiation? Our sin, our rebellion against God is a horrible crime. An infinite offense to a perfect and holy God. And the only right response to a great and terrible crime is a just punishment. And we know this deep within our souls because when a person does something horrible in our society, like rape or murder, when someone drives their car into a parade of children and in an instant changes the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of people, if we just expect our justice system to forgive and to say, that's okay, promise not to do it again, you can go free, we'd be outraged. It's not right. But our crimes against God, they're infinitely worse than these. And I don't think we realize that. Our sin, our sins are crimes against God that are infinitely worse than those horrible things, the most horrible earthly crimes you can imagine. And and yet, when you talk to people about heaven and hell and God's acceptance of them, People seem to expect God to just forgive. To say, that's okay. Promise to try harder. I forgive you. It's the same dilemma. Why would we expect God to just forgive without there being justice? What a horrible thought that is. And the reality is, it's right. It's right to be angry over crime. And that righteous anger must be appeased through a just punishment. Someone has to pay. 
And if no one pays, then the victim is shown to be worthless, unimportant. The word propitiation means that the deserving wrath or punishment is appeased. It's satisfied by someone on your behalf. The horrible, terrible crime that you've committed against God, Jesus, propitiated. He appeased. God should be angry at us. It's right for him to be angry at us. It's right for him to justly punish us. It'd be horrible if he didn't. It would say that he's nothing. The only solution is that God sent. God sent the only, his only son, the only one who could propitiate, who could appease the just anger, right anger of God toward us so that we might be forgiven. The beauty of God's love is in the realization that I deserve this punishment. I'm the one who sinned against him. There's nothing I can do to appease his wrath. And it's the love of God that takes the initiative, that solves our greatest possible problem by sending, by sending his son so that we might live. He's the initiator. And what it cost him is beyond anything that we've ever experienced or anything that we might imagine. And in light of this, verse 11 appeals to us. Verse 11 appeals to us saying, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And verse 12 goes on to explain, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God has given so much in sending his son And this is what we celebrate each Christmas season. The sending of his son, the the giving of love. And since God does not only give his love, but God is love. And since we as forgiven children of God are changed by him and indwelt by his spirit, it seems impossible for us to not love. And not just a reaction to a lovable person, but instead a love that overflows and points that undeserving person to God. When we love like this, then the God whom people cannot see, he's made known through us, through those who abide in him, through us and in us, his love is perfected. And we see this kind of love in Anita Smith's response. Only one week after the murder of her husband, knowing that their infant child would grow up without his dad, she wrote specifically to those who killed Ronnie, saying, I love you. I love you and I forgive you. How could I not She says, how could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge, 
Jesus sacrificed his, love, his life out of love for the very people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus did not come only to take us to paradise when we die, but also to bring peace and healing on this earth. Ronnie loved you because God loves you. Ronnie loved you because God loved him. Not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. Not because Ronnie is so great, but because God is so great. We might say, oh, wow, what a remarkable woman to love and forgive like that. But here's the reality. God is love. And this kind of love is not because of Anita. It's because of God in Anita. And if we truly belong to God, this same love is commanded of us, and it's being perfected in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your only Son. Thank you for loving us and giving us life through Jesus, through his wrath-appeasing sacrifice that has brought us into a, a loving relationship with you. God, truly, your love has enlightened our hearts and given us the ability and desire to respond to you in love. Truly, you've poured your love into us. And so your command is not burdensome because you you give us what you command. Help us to love for the sake of your glory, that through us, your love would be known. Help us to once again be in, in awe of this baby, born in a manger, sent as the greatest expression of love. And we pray in his name. Amen.